If you have your Bible this morning, how about if you take it out and go to 1 Peter chapter 3. And at the same time, you might want to go to John chapter 4 if you're using your Bible. If you don't have one with you, they're in the racks around you. But also, if you don't own a Bible this morning, hear this. If you don't own a Bible, we have free Bibles in the back of the auditorium. And we really want you to take one with you when you leave today. We want you to have a copy of God's Word in your hand. So 1 Peter chapter 3 is kind of our anchor verse for this next three weeks. We're doing this uh, little short series called My Story Matters. And I'll explain to you why we titled it that way as we move forward. But look with me on the screen or maybe in your own Bible at 1 Peter 3.15. It says this, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you yet with gentleness and reverence. We talked in the last couple of weeks about hell and heaven, last week specifically about heaven. And words were used in Scripture that said that there, there's this hope of heaven. We landed on the fact that when we use the word hope, a biblical definition of hope, it, we're really saying confidence. So the same thing applies when you see it here in 1 Peter 3.15. The word hope could be exchanged for the word confidence. Make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the confidence that is in you. The reality is, if you have that kind of confidence, that you know that you know that you know where you're going when you die, people are going to ask you about it. People are going to wonder, why are you happy? Why do you walk with that kind of security? How can you know that for sure? And God says right there, people are going to ask you about it. The thing is, you've got to be prepared to respond. So he says, everyone's going to ask you to give an account that means you've got to be ready, church, to tell your story. You have a story to tell, and your story matters. You really understand that. We just sang about that. When with the ransom into glory, at last his face I shall see, right? You can't sing like that, sing like that unless you have a reason to have that kind of hope. You have a story, and your story matters to God. Did you know that? Because God will use your story to draw people into relationship with him. That's why he says, I want you to be ready. That means there's a lot at stake with your story. I'm personally confident, just doing life with Christ for all these years that I have, I'm personally very confident that individuals who are now in relationship with Jesus Christ have made that commitment to him because they at somewhere along the line heard someone else's story. Someone caused them to stop and say, yeah, i got to know more about that. I want to listen to that. So that means you and I have to recognize what is at stake. That's why we talked about heaven and hell over the last two weeks. And I know what you're thinking, because this is human nature. And Mark, it is so hard to talk to people about hell. Nobody wants to hear about that. But you're right. That is very, very hard to do. But the truth is, when we understand what's at stake, heaven and hell, we understand there's a lot to be risked by not talking to people about who Jesus is. And when you love someone enough, you're going to speak truth into their life, right? That it kind of takes risking the relationship. It takes boldness. It takes courage. It requires us to be vulnerable. That's why God says, be ready, because people are going to ask you. So my question for you is, how are you going to reply? When someone asks you about the hope that's in you, how are you going to reply? 
The, the verse right there says always, and that's a key word for me, to always be ready. There has to be a reason for me to be that motivated, to always be ready. Well, here's the motivation for me, and I, I think it's probably going to be the same for you. I am surrounded by individuals who I do life with in this world that we live in who think that they're good with God, that they've done enough good things in their life that they can tip the scales in their favor and that God's going to wink when it comes time for them to stand before his throne and say, yeah, you've been a really good boy, come on in. They're under this misunderstanding that they can earn God's favor. And I think you're probably surrounded by people like that too. Individuals who believe that they can obtain eternal life through a system of works. For that reason, I want to take you to John chapter 4 this morning. And I want to take you to a very short story in which Jesus engages with a woman at a well. Now, here's the background. If you're turning to John chapter 4, you can just listen to the background. We get to verse 7 was where we're going to start, but here's the background. Jesus has been walking a long time with the disciples, and they're tired. And he's especially weary, and his throat is dry and parched. He's been in the Middle East, and it's high noon. And so he comes to a well, and he sits down on some really ancient rocks that date back to the time of Jacob. And the rest of the disciples, they go into town because they're going to go look for some lunch. They're going to try and find some food to bring back to him. So let's go to verse 7. This is where the story begins. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now this is a really unusual time of day because it's high noon we might not think it's such a big deal, but in the Middle East, you didn't go to the well at noon. Women always went to the well early in the morning to gather water for the day, or they went in the evening to gather water for the next day's needs, but never at high noon. Going to the well was a social event. The women of the community would gather together, and they would travel outside of the city walls into the region of the field, where the well was, and they would gather water together and bring it back. So we've got a woman here by herself at high noon. Why? Well, as you read the story, you discover she doesn't want to run into the other women. She's got a reputation. She has a past, a history, and she's trying to avoid contact. So she's really surprised when she gets to the well and she sees not just another person there, but she sees a man there because men never went to the well let alone, it's a Jew. And immediately, if you're a Samaritan woman at the well, you're thinking, what is a man doing here? A Jew. Jews hate us. Because Jesus is up in the northern area of Israel, which is known as Samaria. And then on top of that, he says, will you give me a drink? Now, he's not demanding it of her in the original text. It means, grant me. Would you favor me with a drink? Let's look at the response. Verse 9. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. John wanted us to have that insight. You being a Jew, how does she know he's a Jew? Well, probably because of his clothing. Rabbis typically wore a, a special type of gown that was about waist length and it had blue tassels on the bottom of it. They could be recognized from a long distance that way. But very traditional Jewish clothing, most, most likely. That's not the most important detail. It's what she says. I am a Samaritan woman. Now, the number one issue in social settings in the Middle East in the first century was that men did not talk to women they had no relationship with. 
And if a woman's husband was not present, there was no way the woman would initiate the conversation. So men and women who didn't know each other would not talk to each other. And then the Pharisees took it one step further. The Pharisees would actually put upon themselves to say, we're not even going to look at women that we don't know. So there's a group of Pharisees in the Middle East in, in Israel who were called the bruised and the bleeding, right? Because every time they saw a woman, they would close their eyes and they kept walking into walls. So they're the bruised and the bleeding, right? So we have these individuals who have this standard for themselves. And that's why she's so shocked, but that's not what really shakes her up. What really shakes her up is there's this Pharisaic law that says Jews and Samaritans are not allowed to use the same drinking vessel. They can't drink out of the same cup. So watch the way that she actually says this. I'm going to put this up on the screen. This is an English translation of the actual Greek words that she used. This is her expression. How you, being a Jew, from me asked to drink a woman, a Samaritan? See, Jesus is standing at a drinking fountain in 1960s deep South America, Alabama, and there's a white sign over the top of the drinking fountain that says, whites only, right? Jesus is up against this cultural barrier in which individuals have artificially set up this line saying, you don't go there. What I love about our Jesus is he smashes all these artificial barriers. You feeling the tone of her question? Don't you know the rules? Verse 10, watch the response. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now he's really poking at her curiosity, right? Lifting her level of thinking here. What you're seeing is called a mashal. A mashal is a Hebrew way of... Um, drawing someone into a conversation, it's called a veiled saying. So when he says, if you knew the gift of God, well, you and I, being church people, we immediately think, well, I know what the gift of God is, but she doesn't. So it's to draw her into this curiosity-type conversation. So what would we say the gift of God is, church? Yeah, Jesus, the Son of God, right? We, we know of John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. It's the gift of God. She doesn't know that. She has no clue. So he says, if you knew the Son of God, you would ask him for a drink of living water. When, when I come asking you for a drink. So catch this. We talked about heaven last week. We talked about God's throne and this river of life that comes flowing down from the throne, meaning it was the source of eternal life. We talked about this thing that was cascading down and throughout the city of heaven. Here we have the river of life, the one who is called living water, coming, asking for a drink. But in reality, what really is going on, she needs to drink from his source because Jesus brings the living water. In the Bible, the word living actually means bringing a, a bubbling type water source or effervescing. You ever seen an artesian well, something that's just flowing from the earth? That's the concept here, this bubbling, effervescing source of water. So Jesus says to her, in effect, I know where you can get bubbling water. She's got pretty quick wit. Watch verse 11, her response. She said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. She's, she's hearing his words, but she's totally missing his meaning. 
Today, you can go to the Middle East in northern Israel, and you can find Jacob's well. It still exists today. Somebody built a building over the top of it, but it's still there. It's 135 feet deep. How Jacob dug that, I have no idea. It's seven foot wide in diameter. It's lined with masonry stones all the way up. How Jacob even knew the water was there, I have no idea. But he dug it, and the ancients looked at it, and they said that's living water because they could see down in the bottom of the well, they could hear it rippling. It actually has a stream flowing through it. So they called it living water because it's actually moving. So she responds, how are you going to get that living water? you got no bucket. You have no way to draw it up. Verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. I'm thinking he's pointing at the well at this point. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Bubbling up. That's what Jesus gives you and I. This gushing, living water. But her interests are really superficial. She wants something that's going to save her the effort from coming from the city every single day to draw water. Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go call your husband and come here. Now, if you know the story, you know that's a problem, right? You know the background here. Jesus' request is really strategic. Now, we've already established it's not proper for a woman to talk with a man unless her husband is present. But she has a bigger dilemma than that. This is not about etiquette. Watch her answer. Verse 17, the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have correctly said I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. Awkward pauses are really awkward, aren't they? See, I waited for the last head that was looking down to turn up. I'm guessing there was a really long, awkward pause when Jesus just let that hang out there. Yeah, you're right. You've got five failed marriages, and you're shacked up with a guy right now living in an adulterous relationship. You're right. You don't have a husband. See, the difficulty in dealing with God is it's really hard to hide things from an omniscient God, isn't it? Okay? Can you imagine what it would have been like to hang around Jesus when he was 12 years old? Nobody wanted to play hide-and-seek with him, right? <laughs> How are you going to hide? I see you. See, here's the deal. Jesus knows all about her life. And at best, she's trying to be evasive. I got no husband. Well, she's not lying, but she's not telling the whole truth. So he looks at her, and he knows her, and her most intimate secrets are out on the table. That's why we can say confidently, Jesus is the one who knows the worst about you, and yet he loves you the most. He didn't stop the conversation just because he knows what's going on in her life. So question for you, what image do you have of this woman this morning? How are you reading her? When, when you look at her background and you hear what Jesus just said about her, what pops in your mind? Here's why I ask. 
Because God sees every one of us right in this moment. He knows exactly what we're thinking. That's why he's omniscient. He knows our hearts, every one of us in this auditorium, just like with this woman. And yet, he doesn't hesitate to speak into her life. Are you checking this? Jesus knows all the dirty details from the very beginning, and that doesn't stop him. No matter what image we have of someone who's made these kind of devastating life choices, and she's made some pretty big ones, you can be sure what God sees is a heart that desperately needs to be rescued. This is the nature and character of God. Now, Jesus has just crossed the boundary line, right? We understand in human relationships, well, there's certain places we'll go in our conversations, but there's places we will not go. Jesus has just gone there. He's crossed the boundary line, and the conversation has taken a major shift. Now, this conversation is no longer an issue of a well, and it has shocked this woman. Jesus has lifted the veil on her life, but her emotional armor is really, really thick, right? Five failed marriages. Watch her response. Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet, (laughs) right? Clue phone's ringing. Okay, verse 20, our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. What's she doing? She's cornered. She's trying to avoid the conversation, so she attempts to change the subject. Exposing her life has just become really, really uncomfortable. So Jesus gives us a class on how to take a conversation to a whole new level because he's willing to go there with her and speak spiritual truth. Remember 1 Peter 3.15 we started with this morning, always be ready to give a defense and account for the hope that is in you. Last two words, yet with gentleness and reverence. He's expressing patience here. So he's going to allow the discussion to go down a whole new trail. This is like, okay, you want to go there and have a conversation about worship? I'll go head to head with you on that. For the next six verses, we're not going to look at them right now, but for the next six verses, Jesus engages with her in a worship conversation. She's totally mystified by the things he's saying. So when we come to verse 25, you find her confused. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. This is kind of code. You're talking way over my head, dude. I don't understand what you're saying. She's absolutely mystified by Jesus' words. So she's kind of confessing her ignorance here. So her ultimate claim is he's, he's coming and he's going to explain everything to us. See, it's the one hope she has in her life that God is going to send someone to explain God because she doesn't understand the relationship. The tradition is really, really old The writings go back thousands of years to the time of Moses that there would be one coming in the future who would explain God. Here's an example of it. Deuteronomy 18.15. This is Moses' writing. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. To that very issue, Jesus responds to the woman at the well. And he responds, responds very directly in verse 26. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is God saying, you're looking at me. 
You're seeing him. So check this. God has just announced, I am, to an adulterous woman living in a backwater town in nowhere Israel. He hasn't been doing that through the New Testament up to this point, if you read it. Jesus hasn't been letting people know who he is. He knows all about her sin, every single failure, yet he still offers her new life. If you're new to church, maybe, maybe this last year is new to you or maybe even the last month, what, these kind of things that you're hearing is completely new and you're thinking, I'm disqualified. My, my past puts me out of this. You need to really read John chapter 4 closely because you're seeing the character and the nature of God. God knows everything about your past, even if you feel disqualified. And yet he's the one who draws you into relationship. That's the nature and character of our God. See, the difference between human love and God's love is this. Human love, human love says, I like you because of what you are. God's love is totally different. He says, I love you because I care about what you become. That's God's framework of thinking. God knows everything about you, yet he cares about what you become, not about what you've done in your past. Now, Jesus' interaction with her is rocking her to the core. She she absolutely knows nothing of who Jesus is. That means she doesn't know anything about him walking on water. She doesn't know anything about the miracles of raising people from the dead. She doesn't know that he's taken little bitty boy's lunch of fish and bread and turned it into enough to feed thousands. She doesn't have any idea of these details. But what she does know is that she's got someone in her presence who sees her heart for what it really is, really sees her. And she knows this is legit. This is a person who's speaking into my world. Now, contrasting, Jesus knows what's going on in her heart right in that moment. So he lets the conversation go. They don't speak another word. She turns and runs back to town. We get an interlude here with verse 27 because the disciples show up. It says this in verse 27, at this point, his disciples came and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek? Or why do you speak with her? Because we talked about, right? It's a violation of rabbinical customs. So all the disciples do is they watch her run down the road back to the city and their eyes turn and they pick up this water jug. They, they see what she's left behind. The very reason she came, she's not taking back with her. What's going on in her world? She has a story to tell, church. God has just intercepted her and her story matters and she knows it. So she's going to go back to tell some people. Watch with me. Verse 28, part A. So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? In the first century, it is highly unlikely that men would receive theological information from a woman, especially of her reputation. But her story is so sincere. Check this. Her story is so real. It matters so much. They listen intently to what she says when she exposes herself and says, he told me everything I've ever done. 
He knows all about my past. Now follow this. On the way back to the city, she didn't enroll in a seminary class, did she? Right? She didn't suddenly become a street preacher. She's just got a story to tell. And she's taking that story right back into the city that she really didn't want to be in, but it's where she does life. Does telling your story matter? Well, this woman could have kept the entire incident to herself. She didn't have to tell anybody about what just happened. She's been trying to avoid the public. But we find the very woman who went to the well at the high noon part of the day is now so compelled by her interaction with Jesus, she has to go back and tell the very people who already have probably had a lot of conversation about her failures in her past into the city, which is not that big, and begins talking about her dirty laundry. Is it really risky to put yourself out there like that? Yep, it is. Is there a possibility that you could breach relationships? Absolutely. That's why I said it takes boldness and it takes courage and it requires being vulnerable. Being willing to say, this is who I am and this is what Jesus did for me. So a question for you this morning. This is directed completely at individuals who identify themselves as followers of Jesus Christ. What price might you be willing to pay for a lost family member to come into relationship with Jesus? Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's a coworker. What price would you be willing to pay? How big is that price? Before you answer that or reason that through, let me show you an example of someone who is willing to pay a pretty high price. We're, we're just about done here. This is going to take four minutes, but just bear with me. Romans chapter 9, verse 1, Paul takes an oath, and he swears on something that it's true. We need to follow through his thinking. Look with me on the screen at verse 1 of Romans chapter 9. Paul starts out by saying, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. So this is like you and I saying, so help me God, right? I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. He's taking an oath here, but he's taking it up a notch. He's saying, I'm telling the truth in Jesus. Jesus will check me on this, and the Holy Spirit backs me up. So he's calling as his indisputable witnesses the Holy Spirit of the living God and Jesus Christ, the Son of God, because he's got something huge to say. And he starts it out by saying, I have unstoppable grief. Now, there's nothing higher by which he can say what he's about to say, but what he's about to say is so shocking, it seems exaggerated at best. But Paul knows something hangs in the balance. Heaven and hell. So watch what he's swearing to. Verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren. Are you, are you catching the depth of this? This is an unbelievable declaration. Paul says, I am willing to go to hell. I will sacrifice my relationship with Jesus Christ and be condemned for eternity if my friends would find Jesus. 
How do you measure yourself against that kind of maturity? Everybody that I've shared this with over the last couple weeks who knew I was prepping for this, especially when they saw Romans 9, had the same look in their eyes that you have right now. It's like, whoa. I don't think I could say that. I'm not sure I could do that. You know why? Because we understand what's at stake. We understand the difference between heaven and hell. Paul does too. And he says, I'm willing to go to hell if it would save my nation. Jesus Christ knows my heart and the Holy Spirit will back me up on this. Now we know that God, who so loves this unloving world, sent His Son and He alone made a way for salvation for us. Paul knows that too. Paul knows it better than anyone. You can't barter with God and bargain your salvation away in order to save someone else. Paul knows that Jesus is the only way that has the power to save you. But he's not speaking emotionally here. He's speaking profoundly with this depth that gives him a gut ache. And it's caused him grief to the degree that he's willing to say, if I could do it, I would do it. Why? Church, because there is so much at stake. Paul understands just how far off base his friends are. He lives in a world of people who think they're good with God. I've done enough good things. God's going to tip the scales in my favor. He really is just going to wink when I stand before his throne. They fail to understand who Jesus is. So he's surrounded by people who think like that. God's just going to let me in. Are you surrounded by people like that? Paul says, I've got grief for those people. I'm going to wait for the train because this is so important. Right? Your story matters. I think Satan knew. Listen, I know it's hard. Surprise of all surprises, it just starts with a conversation. It's, it's simply like this. You can drop the Jesus grenade into your next conversation and begin being a street preacher if you want to, but that's just going to repel people. You can enter into it really easily by saying to someone, what do you think about heaven? Or what's your opinion of the Bible? You can start the lunchroom conversation so easily, but your story matters. So I'm going to ask you to pray in a certain way before I close in prayer. Trust God with your story. Can you do that this week? Trust God with your story. So here's how I'm going to ask you to pray, and it's very simple. Just Put it out there before the Father. You whisper in your own prayer life, God, would you give me the courage to tell my story this week? I'm going to pray that he'll give you opportunities to do that. So just pray that way right now.
God, I know that you hear the hearts of your people and you hear an earnest request, even if everyone in here is not at that place yet. You hear the earnest desire because we all know someone who's far from you. So as your children, those whom you love, we will ask you, and it's not an extravagant request, Father, we're just asking that you help us to be bold enough to tell our story. I especially pray for those right now who think they don't even have a story to tell. God, remind them of who they are in you and what you've forgiven us of. So we pray boldly this way, asking that you would open up opportunities, maybe even in the the lunch line this afternoon or or wherever we find ourselves, maybe tomorrow. God, help us to be bold enough. And when there's an opportunity, help us to be ready to give an account for the hope that is in us. Yet, Father, we pray that we'll do this with gentleness and reverence. I pray for your people that way. And and we put it before you because we trust you with it, God. We know that you'll use it for your kingdom. Grow us in our walk with you as a result of it. Father, we pray for this because the kingdom is worth it. So we ask for this in, in Jesus' mighty name, the one who redeemed us and gave us a story. It's in his name we ask this. And all God's people said, Amen. Have a great week, New Hope.